This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. For thousands of years, God has promised to send a Savior to the world a savior to rule and to reign as king of all other kings. And when Jesus of Nazareth, he arrived, he was certainly not what those people who were waiting were looking for. We've entitled this series of this book of Matthew, our study through it is Following the Unexpected King. Because as we step into Matthew's historical account of Jesus together as a church family, we will get to witness Jesus firsthand and follow the unexpected king as he demonstrates his love and his power and his authority to all people and those who were expecting a king uh, but wasn't expecting a king quite like Jesus. And so like Matthew and, and the other disciples of Jesus Our hope is that we would follow Jesus and that we will be taught by Jesus and that we will be changed by Jesus and that we would look and behold Jesus and that we would worship Jesus as king of all kings sent by God to be our king and to save us. And so my prayer throughout this week, specifically in ramping up till this Sunday, has been that this sermon from the very beginning of Matthew would be packed full of Jesus, the real Jesus, and that through today's sermon, we may all find Jesus to be the supreme joy of our hearts and such a celebration within our souls. Jesus is the way to God, and and so we will preach him, and he is the truth, and so we will listen to him, and he is life. Therefore, our hearts must rejoice and live in him. To use a very robust quote from Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite dead theologians, he said it this way, so inexpressibly fragrant is the name of Jesus that it imparts a delicious perfume to everything which comes in connection with it. That's the Jesus that I want us to experience. That's the Jesus that's real. That's the Jesus that beat death. That's the Jesus that's reigning and ruling even now, and will forevermore at even a greater level do so in the future. And this is what I'm excited about because I'm on his team, because he made me on his team, and I hope he does for you too. So this is my prayer. So let's pray and uh, get to work in light of this thing. Jesus, uh, Lord, would you just come and, and be with us? Would you be near us? Would you speak your truth, Lord, to the ignorance of our souls? Lord, would you prove to be the beauty that defines all other beauty that, that we experience in our lives? Would you, Lord, find us to be, make us to where we see our need and, and find us needy and expressing the fact that we are not perfect and that there is some need in our life? And if we were honest, millions of needs within our lives. And would we see you as the supreme solution and answer to our problems and to our issues and to our need, even through Matthew chapter 1? Use what I've prepared for your glory and the salvation of millions of people. 
Why not? In Jesus' name, amen. So look in Matthew 1. You'll see it's a list of begats or, or such. It's a family tree. It's a genealogy. Without any sort of warning, the gospel of Matthew immediately begins with a family tree which focuses on Jesus, the true king of kings, the true king in the lineage and family of David. Jesus is the one in whom Israel's kingdom and its nation found its ultimate fulfillment. And so Matthew was much more concerned with the history of Jesus rather than his own. This is why we don't even get to understand Matthew until chapters into his book that he gives us, because he's much more concerned with Jesus. And I pray this is the same posture of our hearts this morning. People considered Matthew the equivalent to an IRS agent with a part-time job as a terrorist, because what he did is he collected taxes for the cruel Roman government and obtained his salary by taking excessive amounts from the poorest and the most vulnerable in the local towns and villages. So his salary came not by collecting taxes. It was basically like, hey, go collect taxes for the Roman government. And by the way, you're not getting paid for this gig. You only get paid by what you take over and beyond what Rome requires. So it was very easy for him to set his own salary. It was very easy for him to take because if they did not give because he worked for Rome, Rome would did come and have these people arrested, have their homes and families destroyed. So you paid what he asked. Matthew goes from crook to Christian and he followed Jesus' ministry through his life, through his ministry, through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven. And after all of this, the dust settles Matthew still believing Jesus because he actually was one of the, one of the many actually that, that saw the risen Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit, he writes us this book. He gives us this narrative that we're studying today. So with that kind of backdrop, let's look at verse one. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here at the very beginning, you, you gain perspective into the purpose of Matthew writing us this story, this narrative. He was moved by the Holy Spirit to write of Jesus Christ as the king. So it was important to attach Jesus in the family tree to the king, going back to David, David being attached to the promises made to Abraham. So this genealogy that's given, this family tree, had to attach Jesus with the lineage of David. And attaching Jesus to David and Jesus to Abraham was so vitally important to Matthew's original audience. You see, they hoped with not just like, I hope so-and-so's going to run for president, I hope so-and-so's going to get traded to my favorite team, I hope whatever. Like Their hope was like their whole life and existence, their breath, their job, their money, their resources, their, their farms and families, all things hoped in the God of Abraham, in the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of David the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God of their ancestors. He made very specific, God made very specific promises to these important people throughout the history of the Jewish nation. And so attaching Jesus to David and Abraham was pulling back the curtain on history, bringing it to the present. 
And so Matthew is, is showing us that Jesus is the one who is here to fulfill all of these Old Testament promises and covenants and guarantees. You see, Jesus was promised for hundreds of years, for centuries. And God came to David, for instance, and he says, I'm going to put one of your descendants on the throne and he will reign forever. For Matthew and his readers, this introduction material that we just look at as a bunch of names that are sometimes difficult to pronounce. We don't know a lot about them. But this line was not dull. This list of people was not boring. It was the fulfillment of Israel's story. It was announcing the coming and arrival of their true king. The years of Advent are finished. The waiting is over. The longing is no more. Our king is here. And so for us, we look at Matthew 1 and we're like, okay, we're going to study Matthew. Let's start in chapter 2. Right? It's just boring. Or or we're going to study Matthew. Let's pick it up in verse 18 because the first 17 verses is just names. It is a lot of names. There's a lot of stories here. We could take weeks and weeks unpacking each story and each name. So we look at it from this side of history, looking into this book, and we think, man, this is boring, this is dry, why spend time here looking at a family tree? First off, if God's word is inspired, there is no small portion of scripture. There is no JV portion of scripture. There's no scripture that's more robust than others, so there is power to save right here, which is very encouraging to me as we study this. You see, it is here in this portion of scripture that we see the pedigree of Jesus, the family tree of the king of the Jews. It is absolutely in all ways bizarre that God would enter as man into our broken and fallen world and even have a genealogy. Why would God have a genealogy with us? That's ridiculous. After all, Jesus was the one who was in the beginning with God, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So let us read each line in all with a couple commentary lines here and there. Let us read each line in all and adoring gratitude and thankfulness that we do have a king who is one with us in our own nature who has come to make us new and give us a new nature, a new nature that's found in him. Simply put, this portion of scripture should not only not be assumed and overlooked, but it should be one that is celebrated and worshiped as such a beautiful part of our Bible. God became man. God became man. It's crazy. Let's look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So here's Abraham, the hero of the book of Genesis, if you will, the patriarch from whom all Israel traced its origin. You see, it was back in Genesis that we learned of the covenant between God and Abraham, where God tells Abraham that through his family, there would come one that would redeem, that would redeem in such a way that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, not just the children of Israel. 
So this lineage, it providentially came through broken people who all made poor, reckless, sinful decisions along the way, which should give everybody in this room a lot of hope that God uses people like that. Because after all, if God cares for, for people who are broken in the past, perhaps he'll care for broken people in the present. There's hope there for us. Three through six, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, twins, by the way, by Tamar, it's a lady, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, it's our second lady there, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, third lady, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. You see, he's attaching it here. This is a big deal. David, the king shows up here, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Speaking of Bathsheba, that's the fourth lady here. It's very intriguing here as we consider Matthew's genealogy report of Jesus that he included women. That was highly uncommon. Hardly ever did that happen. Even more intriguing is the type of women that Matthew chooses to point out that's, that are in the family tree of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Tamar slept with her father-in-law. Rahab was a lying prostitute. Ruth was the result of incest. And Bathsheba committed adultery with King David. No one expected the Savior of the world to come through such a family. David, after all, is in the lineage of Jesus so that it could be said that Jesus is king of all kings, even speaking within his own family. So he just continues to roll down this royal line of Judah here. Look in 7 through 10. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. Here, if you, if you have any background in the kings of the Old Testament, you see that this is a line of kings. And not a single one of these kings are perfect. Some of these kings that I just read were as awful as a human being could ever be. Yet the Savior comes through these men. Again, this should give us such hope. Jesus is very aware of our sinfulness, even the deep, dark sins of our past, and even the past sins of our parents, and even the past sins of our grandparents, yet he is more than aware he came to offer such people hope. Jesus redeems the past of all who place their hope in him. Verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Here we're, we're very aware of the, the exile where the children of Israel became prisoners and slaves. A very dark time of waiting. 
12 through 16. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, and Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, implied anointed one, implied Messiah, implied the answer. The answer, the correct answer is here. You know, it's very interesting. Every commentary that I studied in preparing for today, none gave per helpful pronunciation, by the way. So I did my best shot. Um, the second thing is, they say, they talk about the obscurity of the names leading up to Jesus. You go from knowledge of people in the lineage of Jesus all the way until you get down to Joseph, where we know hardly nothing. And then there's Jesus. And so the one that we know the least about was Joseph. The one that we know the second least about is Jacob, Joseph's father. The third that we know least about is the grandfather of Jesus, or the great-grandfather of Jesus. And so it's like, it's like it goes to obscurity to point out how that out of nowhere, Jesus shows up out of a forgotten family. I mean, certainly the, the lineage of David is further than what we just traced. It, it goes very, very wide. This is just one strand that gets us to Jesus. But this strand getting us to Jesus is a long line of sinners, a long line of relatively unknown people. Jesus came to live without sin, though he comes from a long line of sinners. And though he was tempted in every way that we are, he still did not sin. And upon his death, all the sins of his people were placed on him, and he died to pay the penalty for our sins. And his resurrection was the entire defeat of sin and death. And by opening up his book with an honest account of Jesus' heritage, Matthew the extortionist turned pastor is telling us that there is room for us all in God's family, completely by grace. There is room for men and women, rich and poor, young and old, moral and immoral, Jew and Gentile, perverted and virgin, religious and irreligious, liars and truth tellers, addicts, murderers and their victims. Certainly by grace, there is room for you in the family of God. There's room for you in the family of God, no matter what you've done, no matter what the history of your family may be. Jesus comes to us in order to provide for us our redemption. He comes to a family of low estate, a, a not a big deal type of family. A family that if they were removed altogether would be missed by zero people. Very, very silent in what is written in the history of these people, especially those leading up to Jesus. As a matter of fact, the very man who would father Jesus 
as his own son, Joseph, was a mere carpenter in the town of Nazareth. Nothing fancy, nothing impressive. And this blows my mind. This should cause our hearts to explode with wonder and with joy that Jesus, the word by whom all things were made, was himself made flesh. And he dwelt among us in complete bodily form. And he, he took on flesh in order to experience life as we experience life. So there's nothing that you can say that he does not understand. Nothing. No matter how dark your life may seem, no matter how depressed and broken and ruined and hopeless, Jesus sees and he knows and he is aware and he can offer radical, radical hope. That's why he came. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, who has come to us to save us. Jesus is truly the help that we've been looking for, that we've been longing for. He is the Prince of Peace, which was promised. And Matthew is concerned with Jesus' right through Joseph to the title of King of the Jews. This is why he focuses so much so on the lineage through Joseph. The previous section that we just looked at shows Joseph to be the descendant of David, but Jesus wasn't Joseph's son as the following verses make more uh, explicit to us. So in order for this to happen, Joseph had to adopt Jesus in order for Jesus to be in the same family as David. But it's going to take a divine intervention here because Joseph needs a lot of persuading, as we're going to learn, because he wants to put Mary away because of her unfaithfulness, which is assumed, which would be assumed by anyone. So look at verse 17 and 18. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, now notice God's purpose that was declared in the Old Testament is coming to fulfillment. So it happened in this way because this is the way it was promised to have happened, you know, a couple thousand years ago. So the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that's a type of engagement. Before they came together as married couple, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You see, there was no other way for Jesus to be born if he was to be our Savior and our Messiah. If he had a sinful father, how would he have a sinless nature? If Jesus was born of a woman, 
so that he would be human, but not by man, so that he would be sinful. This is the only way it could happen, is if he was miraculously fathered by God, which is what took place. Look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved her resolved to divorce her quietly. Being betrothed was a, was a type of engagement. It was a binding contract that, that takes much more to dissolve than divorce does today. It, it required a divorce type of occurrence in order to break this commitment between these two people. And the Old Testament punishment for unfaithfulness, which is assumed... Mary's pregnant. So the Old Testament punishment for this unfaithfulness was death. But divorce by this time had become somewhat accepted. And so a private divorce before a witness was the humane option. And we see Joseph looking at this as his his only option. This is his only way to do this and do this okay is just to quietly, legally let this happen. Verse 20 But he considered these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, this is a carpenter, okay? Like, I doubt from studying this, I doubt he was ever called that. Like, that's royalty. He feels so far from royalty in all that I've studied that this would just be like, such a call to attention. Radical to hear this. But what the angel is doing is reminding him of the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, who all throughout the study of his own nation's history does crazy things that seem impossible and ludicrous that just happens exactly the way he says it's going to happen. So this is a call attention to Joseph, but also to the sender of the message and the one who sent the messenger. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. What a relief. Just those words had to be. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, just being a dude right there is where you're like, oh man, that's awesome. If that's really true, man, there's, whoa. Oh, I thought she was cheating. No. Oh. <laughs> that's not written in there, but you just got to assume being a dude that that's, he had to feel that like, relief. Is any guy with me here? Like, yeah, a couple of us. Maybe it's okay for everybody else. I don't know. Um, Verse 21. Here's the deal. She will bear a son, and you shall call, speaking to the father, which is, that's how names were passed down. It's very important here. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Old Testament word Yeshua, or Joshua, meaning God saves. Both languages, same meaning. 
Jesus is what he is called. Jesus is a verb and it's a proper noun. That's beautiful. Jesus is what he does and who he is. Jesus. Jesus saves us from the punishment and the guilt of sin and then from all the ill effects and evil power of sin and this he does for his people. It is most true that Jesus saves his people from their sins. The earth knows it, it tells us. Hell screams the fact and heaven chants it in worshipful chants over and over and over. Time has seen it and eternity will reveal it. There is absolutely no one like Jesus in saving power. No name can banish fear like the name of Jesus. It is the beginning of hope. It is the conclusion of despair. No matter who you are, where you come from. Even to this day, we still call our Lord by this name, Jesus. The one who saves because he continues to save. May we never cease to tell of his great name to all we come in contact with, for we will one day see him because he saved us. There are hundreds of people in our city that are to be brought into the family of God, and he's using us, he's using you, make yourself available. He's using you to speak of his goodness and his grace and his gentleness and his kindness and his saving work for others so that they too would believe and be saved so that he can once again prove his name, saving him, saving her. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, this is speaking of Isaiah, around 700 years before. 700 years before. And if you're going to write up a religion, I don't think it'd be the first option to think, you know, let's write in there that one day there'll be a virgin have a kid. Like, yeah, let's do that. Like, no, like if you're, even if you're thinking of religion to make up, to me it makes sense to have something that's possible, Right? <laughs> that just by chance might happen one day and you become famous for writing all this stuff years before, right? All this happened, this, this what I'm about to read, over 700 years earlier, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name is declared at the beginning of Matthew as Emmanuel. Even in the beginning, in Isaiah rather, as Emmanuel, and in the conclusion of Matthew chapter 28, he says, for I am with you always. He is present and he is with us. God is with us and we see it in Jesus Christ. To quote Isaiah specifically from Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, a proof, evidence, that this is the Messiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel and Jesus essentially mean the same thing. God with us is our savior. God among us is fearful, but God with us, that's our salvation. For we will be with God. That is our salvation. He is with us as God on purpose to save us. Let's look at verse 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, 
by grace. <laughs> That's my own parentheses. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save from sin. There is no knowing of Jesus if Jesus is not known as Savior. Jesus is Savior or nothing. His, his name is not called Jesus because he's simply an example to follow, though indeed he is the perfect example to follow, and we would be wise to walk as he walked. But his name is called Jesus because he has come to earth to save that which has been lost. He is nothing if he is not a savior. His very name is a deception, a farce, if he does not save his people from their sins. Now Jesus does save his people from sin, and he does it by taking on the sins of his people upon himself. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the transgression, the wrong of us all. The shoulders of Jesus bore the guilt of his people, and because he took their penalty, his people are free. They have no burden of sin to weigh them down. This is grace. Jesus saves his people through his personal substitution by standing in their place and suffering in their place through his perfect life and through his brutal death. There is no other way of salvation but by the sufferings and death of God's own son. Jesus saves his people by bearing the penalty due to their sin. Again, from Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Christ also suffered for us. He died the just for the unjust in order to reconcile us to God, to bring us to God. He bore the wrath of God, which was due to us. He, he has taken the sin and he has paid the penalty. And the result, the result for everyone who will believe that Jesus did this is a new heart. It's a, it's, it's a new life. It's a new eternity. It's complete transformation. It's a fresh beginning. This is hope. My friends, my family, people I don't know that are gathering us today, this is hope. This is what your life is looking for. Your life is a giant question, and God said through Jesus, here's the giant answer. Now receive peace and grace and mercy and love as you learn and worship my son Jesus. Those redeemed and saved by Jesus will be without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing. No sign that the devil or evil ever dwelt within them will remain in them. 
when their lives are over and we are all raised with Christ in eternity, you can search our bodies through and through. You will not find one trace of where sin was during our time on earth. Not a single glimpse of where there could have been the power of sin in our lives. You will look into our heart. You will look into our mind. You will look into our understanding. But when Jesus has done his saving, purging work, there won't even be a scar or a speck to show that sin was ever in your life. Not even a sign of suffering. This is how Jesus saves us. This is hope. So this complete of a salvation of his people from their sins, this is so complete that they'll be able to be in the presence of his angels. This is so complete that they'll be able to be in the presence of God. Even more radical is this is such a complete salvation that for those who believe in Jesus will be one with Jesus, one with him throughout eternity the fullness of Jesus that fills all in all. This is glorious. This is transcendent. This is the salvation of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord that has come to us. He has come to save. He's come to save you. He's come to offer you hope. Now for those who are in Christ and who believe Jesus and who have been joined together by faith and see him as Lord, and are longing to see him again, who no longer fear death as before. For those who understand a glimpse of what true peace looks like, what fulfillment looks like for the Christians who are here, you've been adopted into the family of God. That is worth rejoicing over. Consider this passage of scripture from Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are united in Jesus Christ. That is worth celebrating. That is worth singing and shouting and never getting over. Now for those who are not yet in Christ. For those who are still on the outside of the family of God looking in, hear me here, this lineage, this family tree, this genealogy of Jesus Christ continues till this day. Oh, that you would see Jesus. Oh, that you would believe Jesus and be counted as righteousness for doing so. For, for if you look to Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, as your God and as your King, then you, you are adopted into this family. You're grafted into this family tree. You belong in this family when you believe Jesus. And by, by showcasting the wretched details 
of God's, uh, of this family of Jesus, God uses the genealogy of Jesus to emphasize the fact that we are all sinners and we all need to be reborn into the family of Jesus. This human history that we just read includes adultery and murder and incest and prostitution. But the prevailing message is that no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter how bad we are, there is still room for us in Jesus's family. Jesus came from a line of shameful sinners in order to be shamed for us and to make us saints as he is. Jesus comes from a, a line of, of sinners, shameful sinners, yet because of his finished work, he is not ashamed to call us son, daughter, brother, and sister. My prayer is that we would leave this time together in God's word, worshiping the Son of God, Jesus, the King of kings, who humbled himself by coming to earth for us and being born in the likeness of mankind. Don't get over this. Don't wait for something that's more incredible, more breaking news, more amazing to the soul. God came near. Jesus, God, took on flesh. And he came not to condemn you. He came to be condemned for you. To save you. The heavy lifting is finished. And if you try lifting the heavy lifting, you'll become exhausted and you will not win. It's too much for any team of people to carry. Jesus came to do the lifting for us. And all he asks is that we believe that he did it for us. My prayer is that you would experience the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. Now as we move into the next portion of our gathering, we're going to be focusing on communion. Communion is a family meal. The partakers of this meal, by taking the bread and dipping it in the juice or wine, say, I am in the family of God. Not verbally. You say that by taking of this, that you say, I believe Jesus and I'm, I'm a part of the family of God. Because of what Jesus did through giving us himself, represents the bread, and, and dying in our place, the shedding of blood, forgiving us our sins, that represents the juice and the wine. Because of what he's done, I am in the family of God. And so I want to pray for our meal, our time together here, as we celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us in coming near and saving us. And as we also come with a very somber heart where we think, you know, all that Jesus had to endure for us, it's nothing we take lightly. So we celebrate and we also reflect and we remember what all he had to endure for us. May God bless 
this time, this meal, as we take it together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being obedient to the Father as he sent you to us to do such incredible work, work that was otherwise impossible for us. Lord, you did this for us. Lord, we just want to take a moment and say thanks and that we have not forgotten what you have done. We do this in remembrance of you. We do this because of you. We take this only through you. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for continuing to save. Lord, would you move in the hearts of the people in this room even right now, and would you save people? Would you just cause the skeptic to believe? Would you just cause those who have been so injured and hurt and bruised by the church to believe you anyway? God, would you just cause faith to grow where doubt is flourishing? God, do these things. You've done it in me. You've done it in others. I know you can do this. I know you can save. God, please, move in our time together as we reflect, as we take communion, as we remember, as we pray. Lord, just be with this next chunk of time while we worship what you have done. We worship you in what you've done for us. In Christ's name. Amen.